This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. Thank you for checking out episode 34 of the Paltrowcast. On this episode, I spoke with three people with very different career trajectories who are all doing really well. Frank Turner, Billy Duffy from The Cult, and Sammy Callahan. First up is my interview with Frank Turner, whose new studio album, No Man's Land, is his eighth full length to date. It is a concept album, and the songs are about women from history. Frank was interestingly a history major during his college studies, and some of those ladies that he's talking about have connections to music, as you'll hear on there. But besides talking about No Man's Land, we also talked about Iron Maiden, which I believe was his first favorite band, his recent marriage and honeymoon, and what else you should know about him, what else he has coming up. Really great guy. A pleasure to talk with Frank. Hey, Frank, it's Darren. How's it going there? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am doing great today. And before I ask you about No Man's Land, I want to ask if it was true that the first album you ever bought was Killers by Iron Maiden. It certainly is true, and I'm very proud of that home too, and I have the artwork tattooed on my leg. Wow. So are you still a Maiden fan to this day? Maiden one of those bands, they're like a first in, last out kind of band, you know what I mean? Like, you will take the rest of my record collection out of my cold, dead hands long before you get my Maiden records. And the last question about that is, who's your favorite guitarist from Maiden? Uh, favorite guitarist from Maiden? It's got to be Dave Murray, really. I mean, he's the OG, you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I think Adrian Smith's incredible, um, but I think it's got to be Dave Murray. I think that is the correct answer, and you win. So looking ahead at No Man's Land, <laughs> it's been out about a month and a half now, and you did a very unique thing in having a podcast about the album to kind of tell the story and build it up. Have you been a podcast fan all along? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've listened to some podcasts. I've always been a bit wary of diving too deep into the world of podcasting because I just feel like I have little enough time to listen to music as it is. And if I get deep into podcasting, I'll never listen to enough records ever again. Um, but having said that, yeah, there's a bunch of podcasts that I love that I'm really into. Um, uh, my friend Scroobius Pip does one called Distraction Pieces, which is killer. I've been listening to Jake Brennan's Disgraceland quite a lot recently. Um, but And the other thing is, like, I've been on the receiving end of podcasts many times. You know, I've been I've been the interviewee. Uh, but it's quite a different experience actually being the person in the driving seat. And I've learned a lot in the process of making my own podcast about how challenging that can be. So I've, I've kind of come out of it with a newfound respect for, for full-time podcasters. And in terms of No Man's Land, did you have the concept before you started making an album? Or had you written songs before that? What was the journey with that? The very first kind of beginning for No Man's Land was that, like, um, uh, it's my eighth record. I always want to try and push myself and do different things and do new things um, within my own catalogue when I'm doing something new. And um, I've always been a, an autobiographical writer. You know, I tend to write in a confessional style about my own life. And, and that's cool, and that, that's been fun. But I wanted to explore writing in a different way. So the very first thing I was trying to do was just write songs about um, somebody else's life, you know what I mean? And, and then as a colliery to that, 
to get my kind of love of history and my general history nerding um, kind of into my music as well, because that is my other passion in life. So initially, all I wanted to do was write some history songs, write some storytelling songs and tell some stories about some characters who maybe people didn't know about um, all that much beforehand. After I had about five songs in the bag, I realized that all five of them were about women. And that struck me as kind of interesting. And there's, a, there's an implicit politics to the fact that in trying to choose stories about people who've been underrepresented um, in the historical record, I ended up only writing about women. You know, So at that point, I decided to, to follow that road to the end and, and see where it would take me. And um, so at that point, I started like looking for people to write songs about. But in the beginning, it was just a storytelling record. That's almost like a filmmaker's approach where you interview people who were involved with stories before that. Uh, did you do that? Did you actually travel to places to meet people or family members related to these songs? Um, I did. I did once we got to the podcast side of things. When I was actually writing, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm wary of saying that I did like research because I, I actually studied history at university and I know what real research looks like and I wasn't doing that. You know, I wasn't in a bunch of archives with cotton gloves on or any of that kind of shit. Um, but, you know, I read everything that I could lay my hands on. I mean, given the type of people I was trying to write about, in a lot of instances, there weren't that many things to read. You know, the, the record's pretty sparse. Um, uh, but yeah, once we got to the podcast, I mean, I've been really fortunate. You know, I've spoken to Sania Sha'arawi, who's Huda Sha'arawi's granddaughter. I went to the Dodge City Museum um, to talk about Dora Hand, who died in Dodge City in 1878. Um, I got to uh, go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and see a bunch of stuff that used to belong to Sister Rosetta Tharp and talk to the archivist there. So I, I have been able to connect with it a little bit, which has been a really wonderful privilege. Uh, Sister Rosetta, which you just mentioned, was the first single on the album. Was that the first song also written for the album? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. The first song I wrote for the record was a song called Ginny Bingham's Ghost, which is a song about a witch from Camden Town. And that, I mean, that's quite a good example of what I'm talking about in terms of methodology in the sense that I wanted to write a song about Camden which is like the punk rock area of North London, and I love it to pieces. But there's quite a lot of people who have written songs about Camden directly in the past, whether you're talking about Suggs from Madness or Pete Doherty from The Libertines or whatever. Uh, so I wanted to write about Camden and take a slightly different angle on it, and I found this story about this woman from Camden in the uh, 1600s who was who was alleged to be a witch. Of course, she wasn't really a witch, the most of the thing, but um, uh, she was a really interesting character, so I wrote about her. And you said in the press release that she's a way better guitar player than you. Is that true? Uh, sister, is that thought? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I find kind of musicologically interesting about her is that she was a Pentecostal, you know, she was a holy roller, and they do all their speaking in tongues business, which I have to add as an English person is really quite weird to me. Um, but I mean, there's a definite kind of direct line between that kind of like Pentecostal speaking in tongues form of self-expression and the way that Sister Rosetta Tharp played the electric guitar, which laid a lot of the blueprints for how everybody from Keith Richards on down played the guitar. So, um, you know, I, I found that connection really interesting. And yes, she is definitely a better guitar player than me. <laughs> well, I find with artists, it usually goes either way. When they finish an album that was very involving, that they either are already thinking about the next record or they're saying, I want to do the exact opposite thing that I did on this record in the future and not think about my next one for a long time. Which one are you closer to? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I mean, the thing is, I, I, there's this inbuilt time lag in the music industry, you know what I mean? I, I finished recording this album back at the start of this year, and I finished writing it quite a while ago, so um, I've had time to move on from it sort of on a personal level. I've been writing quite a lot of stuff um, lately. I mean, having said that, I've just put out two records in two years, and I feel like I've got a bit of time to just, like, 
you know, sit back and chill out a little bit, give myself and my audience a bit of breathing space before I do something new. But I've got a bunch of new songs coming and I'm very excited about them. But as ever, they're very, very different from the stuff that's on No Man's Land. I'm hopefully going to do something different this time around as well. And do you think we might ever see things come full circle in terms of that maiden influence? I ask that because I find that most people, what they loved when they were 13 and 14 years old, eventually they hit that point in their 30s or 40s where they rediscovered it and then they go, why did I ever stop doing that? Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, the the problem with that is that, in all honesty, I never quite played in, like, a proper metal band because I'm not a good enough musician, and that's a true fact. You actually have to be able to shred to be in a metal band, and that's part of the reason, I mean, I'm kind of joking when I say this, but part of the reason I got so into, like, punk and hardcore because it's a lot fucking easy to play. Um, so, uh, you know, it, I think if I do something like that, I'm probably more likely to end up in a kind of old-school hardcore band than I am to end up in a metal band. Um, I just, you know, I've got a bunch of Iron Maiden chord books and, like, tab books when I was a kid and I still can't fucking play it. Of course. Well, the solution in a lot of those bands is usually it's the rhythm player who's writing everything. So I'd say there is hope for you. You know, (laughs) as this prolific, prolific artist, because you have done two albums in two years, but it looks like on average you do have an album out every year and a half and you're steadily touring behind that whole thing. And it looks like everything's growing with each album. But is there anything you haven't yet accomplished that you're still hoping to accomplish? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the the easiest thing to think of an answer to that is that there are parts of the world that I haven't visited yet that I'd really love to. So um, uh, I've never been to South America yet, um, uh, and I really, really want to go uh, to South America um, uh, uh, to play some shows there. So that's cool. But I mean, I also I think it's quite a good discipline in life to try and be your own harshest critic. And I spend a lot of time being critical of my own songwriting and trying to figure out how I could do it better and how I could improve. And I definitely think that I have better songs in me yet than ones I've written to date. So um, that's a big thing for me. And is there a lot of life for you outside of music? Um, You know, there is more now than there was in the past. I definitely had a long period of time where all I did was play shows, tour all the time. We used to do like 300 days away from home a year. You know what I mean? It was kind of manic. And, um, uh, and that was kind of cool in my 20s. I mean, having said that, I definitely kind of reached a point where I was kind of doing myself some kind of physical and mental damage by living that way. And I still tour a lot, you know, and I love it. And it's the thing I want to do with my life. Having said that, um, I don't want to like kill myself and I don't want to become one dimensional in the process. So I'm working on having more life outside music. The, mo- the big thing, obviously, is uh, that I just got married about a month ago. So um, I'm enjoying uh, married life and I went on the honeymoon and it was killer. And when people pretty much travel like living like you do, they usually don't want to be on the road when they don't have to be. So did you actually do a staycation for your honeymoon? <laughs> Tempting as that would have been, I'm not sure that my missus would have been super stoked about us doing a staycation for the honeymoon. Um, no, we went to Sicily actually, and it was amazing. I'd never been there before, and I had an absolutely amazing time. Wow! So South America on your eventual to-do list, Sicily on your recently completed uh, list. It never stops for Frank Turner. So, in closing, Frank, any last words for the kids? Uh, any last words for the kids? Um, come down to a show, and we'll sing a song together. Next up is an interview with Billy Duffy from The Cult, and we recorded that one in mid-September, right before it had been announced that they would be doing the 30th anniversary of the Sonic Temple album's world tour, or at least the continuation of it, into the northeastern United States. So the band is on the road promoting that 30th anniversary edition of the album, definitely a classic, 
and the tour, and Billy himself has really kept busy over the years with a variety of bands, including Camp Freddy, Kings of Chaos. He really never stops working. He also has his own line of guitars, which we spoke a little bit about. But I also got him to open up about life off the road, life outside of music, which I don't think he talks very much about. Really a pleasure to speak to Billy. I think this is the third time I've interviewed him, and hope it's not the last. We are talking about the 30th anniversary edition of Sonic Temple, and I want to know how long that was in the planning stages for. Probably about a year, I think. You know, on and off. I think think it was about a year. And did you know that all that archival stuff was there, or is it that something that somebody discovered later on in the process after they knew that there might be this release? Well, the archive, no, I knew it was there because we released something called Rare Cult a long time ago. And, uh, and I was pretty familiar that there was that. I mean, I didn't know every single minute detail, but I knew there was a fair amount of stuff uh, there for us to, to pick from. And it had been got, some of it had been gone through before. So, um, you know, it, it was a complete surprise. I just hadn't looked at it for a couple of years, you know. Well, a lot of artists have a complex relationship when you have a classic album in your catalog like Sonic Temple in that initially after it's first successful, you go, I don't want to play these songs every single night. And then enough time passes where you realize it's a classic. Uh, This is what the people want to hear and the people get excited. So I'm curious when you figured out Sonic Temple was an album that people wanted to hear, not just a bunch of hit songs that were from, you know, 30 years ago. Well, I think, to be honest, um, the main uh, the main reason... Well, we've done a couple of album tours before, and um, people seem to, you know, the fan base... These days, it's really about the, the, the kind of loyal fan base, you know. They stuck with us for so long, so... I think it's really more about them and with social media and everything else, it's pretty easy to understand that they would want to hear it. Although I think the format of just playing an album, you know, loads of bands have done it. It's nothing particularly unique, but, um, you know, the the, the demand's definitely there. People do show up for these things, you know. They just like to hear the songs and especially the ones that they might have grown up with and not... uh, had a chance to, uh, you know, get um, a chance to hear live, you know. Maybe they missed the first tour back in 1989. Well, are you somebody that personally likes playing the hits? Because that's another thing where you hear artists say, I'm tired of the hits. It's exciting to see the crowd light up. And then there's other people that go, no, there's a reason they're the hits. They're the great songs. Uh, Yeah, it's a bit of both. I I think, you know, honestly, it's a bit of both. I, uh, I we're lucky that we've got some songs that, that uh, you know, I really don't mind playing over and over again. So they just kind of take over. You just start them and they sort of take over for them for themselves, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can agree with both sides of that argument. I, you know, I, I think it's a live experience, you know, people are uh, a lot of fans music people react better when they play they hear music that's familiar to them you know with the best will in the world if people haven't heard a song you know so it's a, it's about creating an atmosphere at the, the night you know that gets that reaction like you, you referred to but yeah just 
churning out one hit single after another. I mean, I don't think a lot of bands start out with the notion that all they want to do is write material that's going to be, grow, you know, greatly popular. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure some do, but in general, I think a band like The Cool, you know, we're grateful that we've had some hit records, but it's not really about just the creation of hits. We're not like, you know, Tin Pan Alley or, you know, that's just a means, a means to an end. It's nice to get the notoriety from a hit, you know. And another funny thing is you never really know when your biggest album's going to be, you know what I mean? You never really get told um, when you're going through it, you know, you always think your next one's going to be great, you know what I mean? You never know, when, you know, you, you have to look back because you mentioned before in your earlier question about, you know, when does an album become a classic? And I think it's when the music's endured over a period of time and people still go back and listen to it and uh, and it still sounds sort of relevant-ish, you know? And I think if you're a band that can do that, you're fortunate um, to be able, you know, to be in that position where your music doesn't that sound so dated, you know? And another facet of your career that's very interesting, to me at least, is the success that you found in playing in all-star bands, not just Camp Freddy, not just Kings of Chaos. You've always kept at it. And a lot of artists used to look at playing covers as a lame thing to do, whereas it seems like you've realized that it has a lot to do with paying respect to the songs that you grew up on. It's a very good point. I've definitely done it later in life when I was a younger man and when the cult started. There was still kind of a hangover from punk rock. And really, you know, it wasn't... The mentality that permeated the music business, certainly in the UK, wasn't really about doing covers of old classic songs. It was kind of that had all been done. And the idea was trying to always create something a bit supposedly interesting and fresh. And be forwards thinking, I mean, you know, there were always a certain, certain bands you could cover. You know, it always seemed to be okay to cover Iggy and the Stooges. You know, it was always cool to cover bands who never really sold a lot of records themselves. But, um, and also another thing, most, most bands growing up in the UK, we don't have a huge, um, that circuit where you learn as a musician to play covers in clubs. You know, non, nobody I knew grew up doing that. It was always about writing your own music. Um, there, there was no, I'm going to be like a club guy who plays the relevant hits of the month, you know. So, so we never had that. So in answer to your question, as a, later in life, after I'd achieved some things and seen some things and done some stuff with the cult, towards the, the more, in the arc of my life, towards more the end of my career, I've kind of embraced uh, playing with people and, and uh, enjoying a bit of fun and camaraderie. Um, and I think there's, it's actually a very good question because all those guys who do those bands, they do it because they want to. And they want to because there's less of the interpersonal drama that's involved when you've inherited a band. You know what I mean? People are coming together for the pure joy of playing. Usually they're not really doing it for the, uh, the financial rewards, if you know what I mean. 
it's a pure that that's I think those the Camp Freddy gigs and the Kings of Chaos and all that stuff. It's just everybody gets to a point where they're like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to you know play a ZZ Top song with Stone Temple Pilots guys and Billy Gibbons or you know a million different things? Wouldn't it be great to hear Chester Bennington sing a cult song? You know because he wants to. Or, you know, and then all the other guys have all their own reasons for doing it, too. You know, and I, I think it's an important point. It's just from my perspective, when I started, I, I kind of was in the punk days. So it really was more if he did a cover, it literally would have been an Iggy Pop song or something like that. And everything else was, you know, we weren't as reverential to the, the old classics. But now um, it's been a great joy. And I learned a lot as well, to be honest with you. You know, as I've gotten older by playing with these guys, watching them, it's great, you know. Another thing that makes the cult stand out to me is the sidemen or the additional musicians that you've used in your bands over the years are almost like a who's who of great bands. When you look at your drummer, John, and his past with White Zombie, for example, and, you know, Billy coming in and out of, in and out of the band as well. Yeah. Is it by design that these people went on to have big careers or was there a lot of, you know, preparation in, in finding these top musicians? We have a, a pretty good track record of of guys going on from working with the cult and going on to play, you know, with uh, very successful acts. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I, I like to think that, you know, having the cult on your CV is a pretty cool thing also. So that might uh, give them some, something of a stamp of approval when they're uh, out there in the job market. Um, you know, uh, but I think that I, I, do, I just guess it, it's really more circumstantial. It's not like we've sat there and really tried to get guys. Guys have just cropped up. And I'm, I guess guys who are attracted to play with a band like The Cult, which is as much as we've had some success, I wouldn't call us an overtly um, commercial type enterprise. You've got to have something about you to want to kind of play the cult music. I think stands you in good stead to go on and, you know, obviously, you, you, you know, the guys who've been in the band and um, and who they've played with. So so it's been cool. I mean, ironically, not, you know, it was never by our... The circumstances have always led us to have to get different guys in the band. It's not like we wanted to. I would have happily stayed with the first couple of guys we ever had. I'd love to be like you too and have kept the same lineup, but I, I always admire bands who can manage that, you know, but it's it's hard enough for just me and Ian to get along, so I can't <laughs> imagine. You know what I'm saying? If you multiply that dynamic equation out by another two guys who've been there for nearly forty years. You know, it's, it's, it's a rarity, put it that way, as you know. And we've talked about this reissue of Sonic Temple, this impressive five-CD yeah. reissue. And, of course, the cult is still regularly touring. And you have the occasional kind of gigs and collaborations, like Above Ground, I know that you'll be appearing at. And plus, you have your new line of guitars, or at least you've had a line of guitars for a couple of years. Is there anything that I missed yeah. that you're working on? No, that's what I do. I mean, if something fun comes up an opportunity to play i'll do it i'm not i'm a, I'm a person who has a, a pretty content life outside of being in a band um I, i'm very fortunate personally at the the balance and at the fact that the cult still gives me that opportunity to go out and play songs i wrote and 
you know, engage occasionally in writing some new music, which is fun once in a while, you know, uh, despite the obvious challenges. Um, I'm, I'm a very lucky guy, so I'm just really at this stage of the game trying to enjoy stuff. And um, yeah, I've been, you know, people have sort of approached me about doing signature guitars and, and um, again, I only do it when I believe in the guitars and I believe in the company, you know I mean? I, I, I don't just endorse any old thing. I, it has to be something that I think if I'm going to stand behind it, that I feel that if somebody buys it, that I've, I've given them a good recommendation, you know? So is there life outside of music for you or do you tour so much that when you have off time, you just stay home? Um, there's definitely life outside of music. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can find ways to amuse myself. I'm not a guy who needs to have a studio in my house and constantly be doing that. I've never been that guy. I, I have friends who are that guy and I have friends who are not that guy. And all of us have had varying degrees of success. I don't think there's a right or wrong. It's just whatever works for you as a human being, you know, some people need to be constantly engaged with music in some way, shape or form with the cult. We, we don't, we don't tour with anywhere near the amount of, uh, uh, gigs that we used to, but we do seem to keep ourselves fairly busy. You know, we've, we've played concerts every year for the last 16 years. Um, pretty much. So, uh, or 13 years, something like that. I can't remember. We've, we've done, you know we're active every year, but we don't we don't just hammer it. You know I don't I don't really think the desire is there to beat ourselves up anymore. Um, you know the uh, the old adage. You know uh, I, I I'll do the gig for free. I just want to get paid for the 23 hours a day that it takes me to get to the point of walking on stage. That old cliche rings true a little bit. You know I I think that. That, you know, the longer you're around, I mean, unless you're flying on private jets and staying in a suite at the Four Seasons and doing three gigs a week, which, you know, some bands do, if, you, if you're not in that kind of, like, elite uh, world, which I've, I've, I've seen that world and I've, I've, I've walked through those corridors once in a while, you know, people are like, oh, it's great, those bands are still going. I'm like, yeah, well, it's not that tough when you've, each of you's got your own personal tour bus and you're up playing on a private plane and, you know, you're staying sure. for a week at a time at a four seasons, you know, uh, that I'm, I wouldn't call that roughing it, but when it's all of you in the back of a bus or a van or whatever with the, you know, that's not, that's no life for an older fella. The big difference between keeping up, I have a lot of um, incredible respect more for musicians who are in smaller bands who've been going and making good music but have never had the great, you know, international material success. Um, and those guys are still out there in the back of the van or, or, you know, piled in a tour bus, just beating themselves up, man. They, they, you know, God bless them, you know. Well, two quick questions and then you're a free man. And the first one, yeah, sure, man. No problem. the first question is, and this is a weird question, but something I'm intrigued about after seeing the cult live a few times. Do you have a road case of just tambourines that are there to be smashed? Uh, well, not my department. You know, that's, uh, that's lead singer slash drums. But I can say, tell you that there are, yes, there are specific tambourines that Ian likes. 
um, that are not that expensive. They're actually quite cheap and cheerful. I think they might be made in India or Pakistan or somewhere. They're, they're actually, and he, he, he uses them because he likes them. The smashing is just part of it because he could buy a very expensive tambourine made in the finest materials, but he chooses, he li- he's always liked those tambourines, it's, um, and that's his preference. I think the smashing up and the, and the gift throwing them out in the crowd has just become part of his thing. But um, so it's, it's, it's a double-edged thing. You know, it's not a gimmick. He, he actually uses those tambourines because he likes the sound and the feel. So in closing, Billy, any last words for the kids? For the kids? For the kids? I ain't got words for the kids. I'm not like, uh, you know, because they ain't listening anyway. As Keith Richards once said, and uh, I always use this when I'm asked something about the kids, they'll find out themselves, you know. They'll find out. Keep getting in the ring, keep swinging, and um, they'll find out. Last and definitely not least is my October 2019 interview with Sammy Callahan, the current world champion of Impact Wrestling. Sammy's worked with pretty much every major wrestling company in the globe or on the globe, over the globe, whatever you want to say about the globe over the last 15 years. And he's finally the face of a major wrestling company, which is great to see. We began our conversation talking about his recent winning of the Impact Wrestling World Championship. Then we moved along to talking about his love of music, his future career plans, and why he lives in Ohio. Um, I think all that's going to open up some dimensions that you didn't know were there about Sammy Callahan, who I don't know if I'm allowed to say he's a great guy. Really enjoyed talking with him. Um, Again, not sure if you're allowed to say that, given who he is on camera, but hopefully you'll enjoy this new side of Sammy. Good day so far, champ? 100%. Being world champion must be really, really thrilling. Is everyone in your life calling you champ at this point? Everyone's always called me champ because at the end of the day, I should have been the champ of Impact Wrestling years ago. I think that is not something that a lot of people can dispute there. But did winning the title feel as good as you thought it would? Yeah, it's somewhat of a validation in my career, but this is just the start of things. I, I'm a very goal-oriented person. This is one goal, now we're on to the next goal. I'm never complacent just sitting around and looking back at what I've done. It's all about what I'm going to do. Absolutely, but unfortunately, Tessa Blanchard kind of ruined your moment in there. I'm sick of hearing about Tessa Blanchard. She's a spoiled little brat that came out and ruined my moment because she wanted to make herself famous off the name of the draw. If Tessa Blanchard gets in the ring with me again, I'm just going to embarrass her and make sure she leaves Impact Wrestling because I'm sick of her. I'd be taken aback, too, if somebody ruined my spotlight like that, but I'm sure everyone else is happy for you and congratulating you. Yeah, it's always about Tessa. Tessa, Tessa, Tessa. I'm sick of hearing about Tessa this point you have the world champion on your line right now and you want to talk about tessa blanchard there's a thousand other things i'd rather talk about than tessa blanchard okay well let me move along to a compliment here you have one of the best entrance songs in professional wrestling today who are the people behind the song that song was actually done by my brother-in-law who's an absolutely badass recording artist that's trying to break into the field right now and he made that on a whim for us and they actually absolutely killed it what's the name of your brother and his band they don't have a band name right now. His name is Stefan Galifianakis, and uh, he's going to be a big star someday in the world of music as a producer and a music writer. Uh, he made that entire song by himself, the drum, the guitar, the vocals, every aspect of that song he did himself. And I'd love to get him more work for Impact Wrestling because I think he has a real knack for professional wrestling interest music. Have you always been a metal guy, or is it you just heard that song and said, that's my new song? I'm not. 
I'm an everything guy. All the, just like in life, I'm not one style of anything. There, some days I like Billy Joel. Some days I like Prince. Some days I like Elton John. Some days I like Metallica. Some days I like A Day to Remember. Some days I like Bowling for Soup. Some days I like The Misfits. I like every style of music. It all determines what I'm going through in my head at that point. Now, there's days I might listen to some Kanye West. There's some days that I might listen to a little old school run DMC. It all depends what I'm feeling at that moment. Well, I think I saw a Misfits neon green patch knitted into your vest recently. Are my eyes fooling me, or did you have a Misfits patch in there? 100% had a Misfits patch. Misfits were one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, anytime I can give them a little bit of press, a little bit of plug, and have them on with me is a great day. Did you see any of the reunion shows with Glenn Danzig? I did, and I actually, uh, I think the Misfits are better without Glenn Danzig. I like uh, the newer era of the Misfits better, and I might be the only one, but... uh, Project 1956 is probably my favorite album to ever put together. Have you ever communicated that to Jerry Only or anybody within the organization? I have not. I would love to do that if someone out there can help set up me in a meeting with the Misfits, because I'd, I'd love to kiss their ass a little bit and give them the gratitude they deserve. Misfits is a band that a lot of wrestling fans seem to be into. Were you into the Misfits even before you were into wrestling? I was always into the Misfits. Misfits was a band that uh, really brought me up when I was a childhood. My brothers were Misfits fans, so I got into the Misfits at a really young age. Got it. And another topic that I find interesting about you is, of course, your allegiance to the state of Ohio. And I had the pleasure last summer of going to Columbus on a press trip. Uh, the city invited me and all that. Do you still live within, you know, 40, 50 miles of Columbus? I live in Dayton, Ohio, so I'm right in the heart of things. I'm 45 minutes from Columbus, 45 minutes from Cincinnati, uh, two and a half hours from Sandusky, the lowest host of capital of the world. I live in a great spot in Ohio right now, especially over the past couple of years. Since I moved back to Dayton, uh, I realized that the entire Dayton community and uh, area has been rebuilt because Dayton got real bad for a while. But uh, over the past five years, uh, a young group of people have started buying out parts of the city and really revamping it. So what is it that keeps you so loyal to Ohio in general? Because, of course, OVE is a thing. Dude, honestly, I love Ohio. And I didn't even realize how much I loved Ohio until I didn't live in Ohio. I was always that kid that was like, you know what, I'm going to live around the world. And then I lived around the world, and now I want to be back in Ohio. I bought my first home that I've ever purchased in my life because of professional wrestling in Dayton, Ohio, because I love this community and I want to give back to this community. There, there's something about being from Ohio that people not from Ohio will never understand. It's this, this group of community. People from Ohio love Ohio. Ohio has amazing seasons. It's not just hot or cold all the time. Uh, Ohio has an amazing college football franchise. Um, Ohio has amazing pro football teams. Ohio has two of the best theme parks in the entire world. And me being a coaster enthusiast of America, I think that's uh, one of the main reasons I love Ohio. I have season passes to Cedar Point, Kings Island every year because I really am a coaster fiend and getting a chance to have two of the most badass amusement parks in the planet within driving distance is uh, all right by me. A Misfits fiend and a coaster fiend, which is a pretty rarity right there. But I'm curious with living in Ohio, it must be harder to travel to a lot of destinations or is it that you really drive everywhere instead of flying? At this point in my career, man, I'm sick of airports. I fly a lot to begin with, 
But I think Ohio is a perfect hub for, hell, up-and-coming professional wrestlers right now because it's right in the heart of Midwest, and Midwest professional wrestling is thriving right now. This Midwest territory has blown up, and it's a place to get noticed in the world of professional wrestling. Ohio is, is within driving distance of Chicago, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, uh, Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, which is another hotbed, New York City. You could drive there from Ohio under 10 hours. and Honestly, anything under seven hours at this point, I'd rather drive because I, I get my own time. I'm going to go sit at the airport for just as long as amount of time to go somewhere as I would driving there. But if I am driving somewhere, I have the Dayton airport, which has blown up over the past couple of years where I can fly anywhere in the world. Sounds like I have to be checking out Dayton in the near future. And when I was in Kentucky a couple of weeks ago on a press trip, Myron Reed was crediting you for giving him his start in a way and also saying that you played a role in MJF's career. You know, obviously, you're a tough, tough guy in the ring, but people outside of the ring love you. Uh, when did you realize the importance of giving back and preserving wrestling by teaching the younger people out there? Not everyone in the business loves me, so don't, let's not get that construed. But <laughs> I've always been a guy that wants to give back to this business because I was treated like shit when I was younger. Uh, I, anyone that works hard for me, I'm going to bust my ass and work hard for them because that's how the business should be. I don't do it for a thank you. I don't do it for gratification. I can list on and on and on and on and on about all the younger talent that I've helped build and helped hone and help them become who they are and just give them that little piece of advice or that little piece of uh, criticism that they may have needed. But I'm not going to do that because it's not about that. I do this because this is what professional wrestling needs. Hell, my company, The Wrestling Revolver, has been huge of getting some guys signed to Impact Wrestling, younger talent that never would have gotten the opportunity unless they would have the chance to become who they are with my company. Right. And another interesting thing about you, because everything is freaking interesting with Sammy Callahan, is that you were one of the most visible people on the Chris Jericho cruise last year. Was it an enjoyable experience for you to be on that cruise? I ate and drank way too much. To be honest, like the three days afterwards was complete hell because I was hungover for probably a week and a half. <laughs> well, it was a shame when everyone had to turn against you in that last match there. Or is that something that we don't talk about? No, honestly, I think that's great because at the end of the cruise, everyone was talking about me like they should have been. So 2020, you're hopefully coming into 2020 as the champ, but what does the immediate future look like for Sammy Callahan? Sammy Callahan making the Impact World Championship the big belt in professional wrestling. I don't care what company you work for. I don't give a damn what championship you represent. I'm saying right now that the Impact Championship, the Impact World Championship is the belt in professional wrestling right now because it's not about the belt making the man it's about the man making the belt and i make that belt the big effing belt in professional wrestling and i'm going to keep celebrating until the day i lose it with my, a little bit of beer because that's what men drink and not a little bit of the bubbly because that's what bitches drink bubbly's for bitches all righty then so closing sam any last words for the kids yeah check me out on all social media platforms at the sammy callahan on twitter at Official Callahan on Instagram. Also check out my company, The Wrestling Revolver, at PW Revolver on all social media platforms as well as www.prowrestlingrevolver.com. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Mm-hmm.